WPSL Port St. Lucie. It's time for We Are Just Christians, live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Smith and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, and welcome to We Are Just Christians. Thank you, Ray, for the introduction. We really appreciate you being with us today. All of you out there listening, we hope you can stay with us for the next hour or so. We'll be on the air till 10 o'clock, live here on We Are Just Christians. My name is Mike Schmidt. I'm the preacher and one of the elders of the Church of Christ on Savannah Boulevard. And as usual, our partner, Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing fine this morning, Mike. <clears throat> We're really glad you can be here. And um, We Are Just Christians, let me tell you a little bit about the show, and then I'll give you the numbers so you can call in if you desire, get a hold of this. This show is about spirituality, all things spiritual. You don't have to be a believer in Christ to join in or listen to the show, participate. Hope it's not all just, as I say, inside baseball information, something to talk. We talk about a lot of different topics on this show because we believe that uh, all of life is spiritual and that all the topics we come into a normal society uh, are addressed in a spiritual way, many of them directly in the Bible, if not directly, indirectly. And so we, from our study and reading over the years, have come to believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that the New Testament is uh, is the law that we live, should live under in our personal lives, not only in the church as such when we're assembled as a church, but as Christians. And the principles that the New Testament teaches about how to live apply really to all of us as human beings. So that's the basic premise of the show. We'd be glad to discuss the premises behind that, what we, why we believe that, and also anything else that's on your mind. So whatever you, you're thinking about, maybe you're dealing with some kind of a problem or difficulty, you'd like to know what the Bible says about that, we'd be glad to try to help you, give you some references for that. Perhaps you're concerned about things going on around you in society, we'll talk about those things and see if there's any biblical principles that can help us. And uh, any questions you may have about Scripture or about the Bible, about spiritual matters or religion, maybe you've had bad experiences in churches uh, or with clergymen, quote-unquote. We'd be glad to talk with you about those, too. So it's all fair game. All we ask is that you respect us, and we'll respect you. We, pl- we like to have a discussion if we can, but you can call in, ask a question if you'd like, or you can make a point. You can disagree or agree. We'll respond, try to give you some kind of scriptural reference to base our answer on or something that will help you as you go along, and then uh, you feel free to respond to us, and we'll give you the last word in the conversation that we might have. So that's the rule, ground rules for we are just Christians. And let me give you the numbers. You can reach us several ways. The best way is to call us live here in Port St. Lucie, 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number that you can reach us. And Ray there at the station will patch right on through to us, and we can begin a conversation. Uh, if you'd like to text us, sometimes that's easier for people, and we do get a lot of text during the show. You can text us either during the show or during the week at two different numbers. My number, Mike's number, is 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. And Gary's number is very similar, 772-260-6220, 772-260-6220. So if you'd like to text us, uh, we'll try to answer that on the air, respond on the air to your text if we can. Uh, we usually can, but sometimes we can, or even during the week. If you want to make a point or ask a question, go ahead and text us, and we might be able to use that for an upcoming show or even have a, just have a text conversation with you um, during the week. That would be fine, too. So th- that's how you get a hold of the show today. If you'd like to email us, you can email the show at justchristians, one word, justchristians at att.net, justchristians at att.net. Well, Gary, we – Glad to be back today, and we're both here, which is sometimes a hard thing to accomplish, getting yeah. two old men over here limping <laughs> along into the building, but we're glad we can be with folks today. And uh, I got two or three things sitting in front of us. If you'd like to call in and change the subject, you feel free to do that if you're listening and you want to change the subject. But I got two or three odds and ends I'm trying to finish up if we can here that are that maybe are somewhat of a broader interest to some people. And I don't know where to start. Well, start with the Word of God. You know. All right, yeah. Get, tell, tell us what the premise of the show is. Or well, the, the premise the of the show is found in John chapter 12 in the last half of verse 48. 
Um, basically, Jesus says, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day, talking to people who receive or reject his words. And also, I'd like to point out that it's not just the word spoken by Jesus. Basically, he also told the disciples in John 14, verse 25 and 26, he said, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He said that to the, to the apostles, and basically they're the ones that wrote uh, the rest of the New Testament for us to give us the idea of all of those things in the New Testament is what Jesus said. Right. Very good. That's, that's exactly right. Well, we have a call. We have Jerry on the line from Fort Pierce. How you doing, Jerry? Uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning, uh, Gary. I don't want to uh, mess up your line of thought, but I was wondering about uh, the olive oil. Uh, I have had a stroke in the last six months, and I have a speech impediment. But the olive oil, a the theologian and a philosopher, uh, in other words, uh, philosophy, are these, uh, you know, who, who contrast the two, and uh, are these, Still alive and well, theology and philosophy, and I just okay. want to compare the two and what you have in common. And I'd like to listen off her. That'd be all clear, Mike. Fine. Well, thanks for calling in, Jerry. Um, well, uh, let's just talk in general terms about a theologian and philosophy and so forth. Um, theologian is a generic. The Bible doesn't really address the word theologian per se, but uh, we have a lot of words in English that end in ology, right? Well, I guess the closest so it comes the, is Luke refers to Theophilus. Well, yeah. And, I, and it might I come kind of close. Yeah. Theophilus. Now, the words are this very similar because the logos part, or ology part, it means study of or word of. And the theos part is God. So a theologian is one who studies God. So it's the study of God. And theology encompasses a broad range of material not only just about what the Christian view of God is, but probably <clears throat> general generic views of God from all different kinds of religions and so forth. But there are generally what we're more familiar with in the West here, are Christian theologians, people who study God. The Bible doesn't address whether that per se is good or bad. All of us should be students of God trying to study and learn about God. Now, Theophilus Gary is a person, apparently, right. or at least in a, a character in the book of Acts and Luke in verse 1, who the books are written to by Luke. And Theophilus means a lover of God. The philos part is lover or love. So a Theophilus is one who loves God. Right. So some, the question is... Uh, I, that is that was the similarity I was Right. I thought that's what Jerry said at first. I thought he was going to ask about that. Uh, but, but really it's about uh, the, a Theophilus. So the question in the book of Luke and Acts is... Is this Theophilus? Is it referring? And the, now the, the Romans had a, a title for some of their leaders, God lovers. Is this a title of a leader? Is this is an individual, a, a individual or a class man? of Yes, or a, a class man of named people. Theophilus or a class of people. Or is he just talking in general to anybody that loves God? Here's what I'm writing to you about Jesus Christ. And that's the question about this name Theophilus in the book of Luke and Acts, the beginning verses of those two books. But now philosophers... The, the word, again, is different because it's reversed. The philos part is the love, and the sophos part is wisdom in Greek. So a philosopher, by you know etymology, is a lover of wisdom. It's somebody who studies what humans know and can know. And, of course, the Greeks are famous for their philosophers, you know, Archimedes, Socrates, He's Aristotle, right. Plato, the famous Greek philosophers, all a little bit different in their perceptions of the world. They are considered philosophers because they love to understand wisdom and what knowledge is and how men get knowledge and what the world is like. And really, Greek philosophy was kind of an early version of what we call science because it was an attempt to understand how we even know the world that we live in. And Philosophy, Greek philosophy. Now, we'll come to what the Bible says about that a little bit in just a moment. But <clears throat> Greek philosophy, uh, and I think probably all philosophy even today, involves at least three categories of inquiry. 
One is metaphysics, which is a big word, which means, um, you know, spiritual things, things we can't see and the nature of the world. Metaphysics um, and, and human modern humans deal with this, with the idea that, well, are we just an apparition? Uh, are we living in a video game that aliens started? You know, this is a, a kind of a metaphysical thought. And then uh, you have epistemology, another big word, which means how we know what we know. You know, Darwin dealt with epistemology uh, after he wrote Origin of Species when he said, well, I've come to all these great conclusions, but reading what I've written, how can I trust the conclusions of a monkey's mind? Okay, <laughs> that was par a little slight paraphrase of what Darwin wrote toward the end of his life. How can I trust the conclusions of a monkey's mind? Well, that's epistemology. How do you know what you know? Now, modern postmodern philosophy says, this is the reason we're living in confusing times, that we really can't know anything. The only thing you can know is what you think. And so, therefore, we don't really know anything, and each person only knows what they know if they know it, and there's no such thing as truth out there somewhere. See, the Greeks pretty much believed that there was truth out there that could be discovered if man used his mind to discover it, and that's the basis of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. But uh, modern, po postmodern thinking is there's no such thing as truth. Man can't really know anything, especially about morals or good or bad or whatever we should do. And then there is ethics as a branch of philosophy. Ethics is the idea of, well, how do we know if anything is right or wrong and what is right or wrong? And what should man do about what he knows and what he perceives the world to be? Well, modern philosophy still deals with those very things. Those very kind of, of uh, problems is still what philosophy deals with. And so um, you, have a, you have a reference to this in um, a couple of places. One of them is in uh, Colossians chapter 2, uh, if you go over to Colossians chapter 2. And here, Paul, now, <clears throat> a little background, Colossae is what we call Turkey. It was kind of a crossroads. So these cities... Philippi and Colossae were in Laodicea, those areas, right. that area around there, was very well known for having a lot of different ideas of thought floating around. Kind of like if you go to Miami, Gary, where it's a center of trade, international commerce, it's a lot of different kinds of thought floating around. Go from one neighborhood or area to other, you're into something very different. Whereas if you live in Rantoul, Illinois, or somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, there's basically one way of thinking for the most part. And people don't even know what that is. But in, in, in Colossae, there were all these different world philosophies floating around, and the Christians were being influenced by them. They had become Christians, and now they're being influenced both by Greek philosophy, by mysticism from the East, and by Jewish thought, very strict religious law and so forth. And so Paul's concerned about these Christians, that they would... Uh, not be led astray. So let me give you a little long reading here, Gary, starting in Col Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. For as many of you as not, have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, he's worried about their unity, and attaining to all the riches, to the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and the Christ. So he's concerned. He wants them to understand they can have knowledge of God, knowledge of spiritual things, and a full understanding of what they need to know. And he says, in whom, that is Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is Paul's maybe not so subtle way or subtle way, however you look at it, of saying you don't need the philosophy of the Hindus of the East. You don't need Jewish mysticism. You don't need Plato and Aristotle to know what you need to know about God. You can have full assurance that because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Now, if all of them are hidden in Christ, how much is left for Plato and Aristotle? Not much. N not much. Right? But verse 8 really makes yeah, it. Now, I'm, I'm getting yeah, there. Okay? I'm getting ahead up. Young now, boy. this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. This is the, these are these theologians and philosophers 
that use persuasive words to draw you away from simple faith in Christ. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Don't lose the steadfast faith that you have. As therefore you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now this is something that's different from in Christianity from Greek philosophy or even human philosophy, that it's about walking or living, doing what's right. It isn't just about thinking high thoughts and then doing whatever you want to do. It's about walking in Christ the way that you received him. Well, that's a, I think that's a common misconception today is we think about being spiritual as being thoughtful or this. Well, yeah, or that, which yes, is how we feel about things. How we feel about things. But really when – when the New Testament says being spiritual, it's talking about walking in the way of God. Exactly. A spiritual man obeys God, right. listens to what God says, and does what God says. That's a definition of a spiritual man in the New Testament, not one who has dreams and visions right. and, and nice feelings. That's not a spiritual man necessarily, because what this passage is trying to say uh, in a subtle way, you're led astray by your own feelings about these matters. But he says, beware lest anyone cheat you, verse 8, through philosophy and empty deceit, empty words, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So he goes on to talk more about some of the Jewish problems with this, the legalism and so forth, as we would say. But he says people... You need to be aware as Christians, you can be cheated by philosophy and vain deceit. The vanity of worldly philosophers is just astounding, Gary, when you read about many of them. Their own pride and vanity in what they say that they yeah. know. or even, even they, they even tell you that you can't know anything very knowledgeably, if that makes any sense. That's the hypocrisy of it. With great swelling words of knowledge, they persuade you that you can't really know anything. And so you have this uh, contradiction there. But he says here, you have everything you need in Christ. Don't be led astray by these philosophies you're hearing from men and, and, not, and, and, not live, and live it according to the tra traditions of men, both Jew and Gentile. According to the basic principles of the world, they're just dealing with worldly principles that are not spiritual principles and not according to Christ. So Paul warns them about being carried away by human love of wisdom. Now, here, here's a little bit of the difference, Gary, between – and there is a difference we've talked about in this show before – between a little bit of difference between um, Greek wisdom and Hebrew wisdom. Greek wisdom was exalting in the knowledge of man, okay, and what man could know, exalting man as a, as a humanist does, as being the measure of all things. Hebrew wisdom, when you read from the Bible in Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, in the wisdom literature, and other places, more directly in those places, involves the knowledge of God doing what God says. Well, That's that, why Solomon can oh, go ahead. I, yeah, well, that would fit with basically, I think, with what Paul is saying. In, in, in the Christians should be that way too. In First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty, he says, "Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Right. Where is the disputer of this age? Has has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed." For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach right. Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because of the foolishness of God, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Basically, he's saying the same thing in a little bit different words. Exactly. Now, now I, I, we got a text from John, which I want to comment on in just a moment, but let me just say this first. Um, the, 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 I, he uses the word wisdom, and he warns them about the ki a kind of wisdom there in that passage. The Bible is not against wisdom. The Bible just defines wisdom for us, not in just any old way, but it says it's the wisdom of knowing God. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes ends with, 
hear the conclusion of the whole matter when all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. So in all of his discussion about how to get wisdom, Solomon kind of finally came to the conclusion that true wisdom is only found in listening to what God says and following his word. Now, men think wisdom is found in, in great lofty, complicated ideas in their own thoughts, and so people get caught up today. Even somewhat uneducated people get caught up in their own thoughts about how the world really is. They don't go to the Bible and find how the world is or what men should do in their own philosophy and how things should work. He warns Christians about this. And, and the thing you don't is, have to combine human wisdom with the gospel to have something better. You and, won't get anything better. And what I've found, Mike, in, in my experience, my personal experience, is the more I learn about what the New Testament says and about what God is telling us, the more I realize about how the world really works. Yes, and it isn't. It's it, predictable. It's predictable. But it's also not very good. And it's not. It's wisdom. not something we might like, but basically. Those people that are looking for utopia, uh, the closest thing you're going to find is if, you know, think about how this world would be if everyone behaved like the Christian is described in the New Testament. Yeah, it'd be a lot better place. It'd be a so much better place. It'd be. As close to utopia as we're going to right. get on this, in this world. But people have their own ideas about how to get that utopia. Right. And they're willing to kill other people to get there, strangely enough. But, but the idea then, uh, so we're not, I'm not against wisdom. Wisdom is important if, as long as it's the right wisdom coming from the Bible, and that gives you a complete wisdom. Now, then there's human wisdom, which is just, well, for example, human wisdom says uh, sleeping together is just as good as being married. Okay, that's human wisdom. That's a simple example. Or kids are, kids are just as well off in daycare as they are in, in a two-parent home with both parents there. Uh, kids are just as good off in date with a daycare, government-run daycare. Uh, those ideas are, are divorce, divorce is a good idea usually for people to make them happy. Divorce will make you happy. Th these are this is this is the distillation of human wisdom, or that there really are there's really a hundred genders, not just two, and you can be happy and fluid when you trans go, go through all these different genders as you feel like going through them. This is human wisdom. Oh, and, and Bible can, wisdom is much different than that, and, and that leads to true happiness. And you can also be any race you want to be. Right, we saw that last week. Last week. Yeah. It's, oh, no, it's, no, you can't be any race. That's human <laughs> wisdom. You can be any gender, but you can't be any race. But but then... so. But what I was pointing out, the, the, the discontinuity of all of this human wisdom doesn't even make sense in many cases when people start talking about it. Right. Now, that's not to say that humans don't have anything valuable to say or learn or do. I don't mean that at all. But I mean, I, I'm going to run what I read from human authors through the filter of God's word first. Then I'm going to pick out the parts that are uh, a sieve, pick out the parts that are useful and throw the rest away. Now, the same thing is true with this word philosophy that Jerry asked about. Uh, we ought to be lovers of wisdom. All Christians should be lovers of wisdom. That's all the word philosophy means. But Paul defines philosophy as it's used in the New Testament to mean a love of human wisdom and great swelling words of vanity, as he says, as the writer of Jude says. And that's what we were con and that's cautioned what, that's against. What we're saying. Yeah, you're cautioned against that in verse 8 of Colossians 2. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. Exactly. You can read, if you read enough, you'll read these people, great swelling words of emptiness. He Jude describes them as uh, clouds that don't bear any water. You know, they look promising to give you rain, but they're not going to give you any any rain, you see. Now then, uh, so we're not against the word wisdom, not against the word philosophy, but we need, it needs to be used in, in the Bible sense of those two words. And th to be a theologian, to be one who wants knowledge of God, no problem there. It's just that most theologians I've read tend to get off the track because they're very enamored not only of their own knowledge, but uh, they want to impress their peers in the theological community, as we'd say. And so they take positions that simply are not supported by Scripture so often. That's not to say you can't find valuable things in the writings of someone like, uh, like uh, now I forgot his name, just said it a moment ago. Uh, <laughs> I would say Niebuhr. Well, I was thinking of C.S. Lewis. Well, well yeah, and some would say he's not really a theologian. He's too simplistic. Of course, he's a philosopher. Yes. But, uh, but C.S. Lewis' intellect, his intellect was so far above what a bunch of the other people I've read 
Reinhold Niebuhr, who I'm thinking of in the Second World War, and, and who was martyred by the Nazis. And, but you got C.S. Lewis, who was wrote to the more common people. And um, that's why I think people love him so much. But as far as understanding philosophy, he was an expert in Greek thinking and the classics and so forth. That was where C.S. Lewis made his mark even before he became a Christian, was in the study of classical Greek wisdom and knowledge. Now, uh, John texted in about this. Gnosticism was starting to form later in the first century, and Paul said he knows nothing but Christ crucified in, in 2 Corinthians 5. And I think that's correct uh, in that sense. Gnosticism, you know, a word that goes along with this, the word, it's, it's, uh, if you want to look it up, it's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, Gnosticism. And you can look, look it up. It's a, it's a philosophy that became prominent in the second, third, fourth centuries A.D. It was beginning to take hold in some of the Christians in the first centuries, what Paul is referring to here in the book chapter we've just read of Colossians. It's what John is referring to uh, partly about the Antichrist and the other passages in the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's what John's referring to there, this beginning or incipient Gnosticism. And the word gnosis that it comes from in Greek is the word for knowledge. knowledge. So we're right back where we started with knowledge and wisdom, you see. And so Gnostics, Gnostics claimed that they had the special secret knowledge about God himself, and that humans could find this knowledge without any help from the Bible or apostles or divine revelation. They just needed to be of a certain sort of person. So Gnostics kind of elevated themselves up, and they were famous for their visions of God that they would have. That's why Paul warns them not to be deceived by people that are puffed up about the vain things that they have seen. And uh, be careful about that, he goes on to say there, book of Colossians, the same thing. So this Gnosticism was beginning to take hold in some Christians that lived in places like Colossae, where they had a lot of different philosophies going through. And Paul warned them that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Now, it takes a theologian, maybe, to get all that out of what the Bible said. But when you begin to read, you see what the Bible says about the nature of the world and God from some pretty smart people, you'll see what I mean. I'll give you an old reference here. Not only C.S. Lewis will help you with this, but another one that many people don't know about, who should know about it, and some of you out there listening should write this down, Francis Schaeffer. He's dead now, but in the 70s and 80s, he was a philosopher, a Christian philosopher in Switzerland, who wrote a lot about the nature of God and society. Schaeffer, S-C-H. A-E-F-F-E-R, Francis Schaeffer. He's pretty well known if you do any, if any, in any kind of religious philosophy class. And, of course, since he did take a pretty conservative position, he's not well liked by some people. But he wrote some books like The God Who Is There. It's one of, the, one of his better books. Uh, he Is There and He Is Not Silent, I think, is even better. But you got to read the first one first, and then read <laughs> He Is There and He's yes. Not Silent. And then the... It's a smaller book, a little more condensed, tougher to get through, Escape from Reason. So there's three, the God who is there, he is there and he's not silent, and Escape from Reason. That if you're interested in pursuing uh, a more deep view of the Christian view of God and the world as opposed to human philosophy, I recommend those three books. And he was dead on in his assessment of what was going to happen based on what was happening in the 60s and 70s in Europe, what was going to happen to the rest of Western society. He's dead on about most of that stuff, and because it's pretty predictable. But I recommend Francis Schaeffer to you, uh, as well as C.S. Lewis, as a place to start to look at some of these kinds of things. If you're interested in, in a uh, Christian view of wisdom and philosophy and how we know what we know, and he, he, in these books, Schaeffer compares the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ to the heap to the pagan gods, what I would call pagan gods of Greece and Rome, even the gods of modern people. He compares those two and shows you superiority of Christ in those books. And um, <clears throat> he was writing to the he, he 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 worked with students in the universities of Europe at that time to give them a basis for Christian thought. 
And so anyway, I recommend them highly. They were influential in my thinking way back there, and I still think they're valuable today if you're interested in that. Gary, you want to comment any more about philosophers and theologians? Well, no, I was, I, was, I was just thinking about basically I think when you when you get right down to it, Calvinism is a philosophy, not not an interpretation of the Bible, at yes. least as far as I can see. And that's why you always hear me say that. Don't mm-hmm. don't follow philosophy, follow the Bible, because right. Calvinism makes a few assumptions, maybe based perhaps on some scripture, uh, and then it runs with that and creates a whole system around that. It's a systematic which, which is, theology. Which is the very opposite of what we've been trying to get across in, in this radio show for, for years, I guess, yeah. is you have to compare all the scripture. You can't just take an idea from one passage. You have to look at passages that modify that idea from time to time right. and, and to try to get the real truth of what the Bible's trying to say. And people don't do that. That's That's... That's a little more difficult, and you have to have some knowledge of what's there, and so it makes it, you know, things that yes, pe- people come up with a couple of a couple of uh, premises, as it were, which may or may not be true, and usually they're faulty premises, and then they it, even if they're true premises, they misapply the premises as they go through, and then they begin to form other doctrines. I'll give you an example. We can talk about Calvinism, but I'll give you an example in Catholicism of how this works. So Augustine and some others come up with this idea of original sin, that the sin of Adam was passed on, uh, as it were, uh, the original sin to all of his descendants. And that's why all of us are sinners, because of original sin. Well, original sin, as well as total depravity, have two problems that are fundamental. One is Adam, and one is Jesus. Okay, Adam poses a problem because... You've got Adam born without sin, and he becomes a sinner. Well, if we're born that, if we're all born that way, why wasn't Adam born that way? And then how does Adam pass it on? Why weren't his? So you have to explain that. And the Bible talks about that. Secondly, more to the point we're talking about now, you got the problem of Jesus Christ. If all men inherit sin because they're descendants of Adam, what about Jesus Christ? Did he inherit sin? Well, here's how the Catholic, over time, it didn't happen initially. See, a lot of problems in philosophies, Gary, don't become apparent because they have, every idea has unintended consequences. And one of the unintended consequences of a doctrine like original sin or total depravity, which sounds so heartwarming that I can't help but being a sinner because Adam did it and I can't help it. Look at poor me. Uh, you know, I need to be totally freed by God's grace alone, and I can't do anything. You know, that lovely philosophy that make, takes all the burden off of me and all the responsibility off of me and puts it on Adam and Christ. And that lovely philosophy has a flaw. What about Jesus Christ? And so what the Catholics did with this over time, they came up later in, later in their history thinking through it, and they came up with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. The Immaculate Conception is not the conception of Jesus Christ. It's the conception of Mary. And so the introduction of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was a doctrine, I believe, in the 1870s. I might be wrong about that. Let me just double-check that. But it's a doctrine, the Immaculate Conception is, that says that Mary was born without sin, and that's why Jesus Christ was born without the sin of Adam, without original sin. Because Mary was born without original sin. And um, so there you go. But you, won't it, find but any, you won't find any of that in the Bible. That's the problem with it yes. right there. You won't find any of that in, in the Bible. This doctrine was first formulated. It was adopted as a church dogma by Pope Pius IX in 1854 by an infallible decree from God. Okay. And, and this is exactly. In 1854, we come up with the Immaculate Conception. It took them a long time to figure out the big problem with the original sin. <laughs> 1854. But basically, this is exactly what Paul was talking about in the Colossian letter in chapter 2 when he says, beware, don't be deceived by these philosophies because they drive you in a direction away from God and away from his word. So I'm, I'm cautious about the things that I read that are outside of scripture, uh, even to the point, Mike, that there are, there are some good authors that write good commentaries about uh, scripture and the things that are there, but then there are others that have their own philosophies to feed just like that. 
that drive them to interpretations of single passages that don't fit other passages that you can't fit together with, with these things. Well, well, Gary, I have to say this, though, to be fair. And, of course, you might realize I'm doing this tongue-in-cheek. This is a doctrine of the Catholic Church that I firmly believe. I firmly believe in the Immaculate Conception of Mary. I believe she was conceived without sin, just like her mother just and her like, mother before that and her mother before that, just like every other human is conceived without being a sinner themselves. They they're become a sinner when they sin. Why do they sin? Now, that, now we might come to the problem of depravity, that humans are familiar with depravity, and all of us, by habit and by custom and by watching others, learn to sin very quickly. Because in us is the desire to be free from any restriction. But I believe Mary was conceived without sin, and therefore... Um, and, and basically, therefore, Joseph was conceived without sin as well. Well, yes. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. I believe that doctrine. So that, so then you have this whole... Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I know, I'm, I know that confuses people when I say that I believe in that, that doctrine, but I hope you get what I'm getting at, is that it's true that Mary was conceived without sin. I have no argument with that. I don't like what they're, how they get there and all the other things that they say. Um, the um, now, now John texts in. Oh, I'm looking at the wrong verse. No wonder uh, John texted in that uh, Paul didn't want to know anything except Christ crucified. He says um, in first in Second Corinthians five sixteen. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. I think what he's trying to say in these verses, partly what John is getting at, is that it doesn't matter whether a person is a rabbi or not a rabbi or whatever the case may be. I'm only going to recognize as authoritative those that God recognizes as authoritative. Um, you know, um, high up intellectuals of you people like me and you Gary is very <laughs> bound up by our own limited knowledge and we are so brainwashed that we believe the things that we do about the Bible and Jesus well my take is completely opposite of that people living in a world that, that you, the only way you can ever believe something if you can prove that some other great intellectual believes it and you have to follow in certain philosophies and some expert has to say it before you'll believe it's true you're the ones that are locked into a world that you can't get out of. Meet such simpletons like Gary and I. We're independent in the sense that we think we can figure out what the truth is by reading the Bible and thinking about what those things are. I'm for, and that's what Paul is saying here. I don't need a rabbi. Paul said, I don't need a rabbi to tell me how to think about Christ and what's good or bad. That when you read what you Paul has written, you can, written, you can right. understand his knowledge of the word of the word of God. And so he was trying to show these Corinthians who had been taught to doubt his authority that his authority came from God, and he didn't need some man with a PhD to back him up before it was true. I can I can give you stacks of things in a few minutes here written by PhDs that are ridiculously false and 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 uh, not even very smart. Well, it, uh, I, I'd rather have one statement from Scripture than a stack of writings by PhDs on any particular subject. Now, the, they would say, well, that makes you ignorant. No, no, it makes me actually a thoughtful person that, that I can think and see through some of this stuff. So, yes, I can argue with Immanuel Kant. Well, yes, I can argue with Charles Darwin. Yes, I can set aside Aristotle when necessary. And that's what the Bible calls you to. Listen to the word of God as revealed in the scriptures really, in a way you can understand and go with that. It all goes back, I think, Mike, to pride. Uh, Jesus said in, in and what I said in, sounds, in, real, John, sounds very in John five and verse. Let's see, I believe it's in verse 44, not not far from where some verses we were talking about. But he says, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Basically, what we're doing when when you're looking at all this philosophy and saying, well, I can't believe it unless, you know, it's, it's stated through all these people. You're saying, I can't. I'm looking for that honor. He he talked about in, I think it's in uh, John. 
let's see, verse 42. I'll, I'll find the reference. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, also many who believed on him, many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. That's society is driving us away from God. Society yeah. is driving, you know, I think you had an article in the, uh, in the bulletin today about how Christians are being criticized every day. Pretty soon, many people who profess to be Christians are going to fall into exactly the same category as these uh, chief rulers who believed on Jesus to some degree, but not enough to confess him or come out because... Well, this is exactly where Christian philosophers and theologians are today in the, exactly. for the most part. Exactly. So and that's why they get a bad name among us, to, you know, lowlifes in religion, because they don't take positions that accord with the scriptures. They deny the virgin birth of Christ. They deny the resurrection. Because they yeah. seek honor from each other right. rather than from God. They have presuppositions and reasons for that, for those positions, but... Uh, that doesn't mean that we can agree. I have people say, well, how can you contradict Martin Luther? Martin Luther was ten times smarter than you were, and I agree with that. He was. He knew like seven complicated languages before he was 18 years old. Martin Luther had a whole stack of PhDs in Europe when they actually meant something. They weren't PhDs in basket weaving. So Martin Luther was an extremely smart man. So was John Calvin. No, I don't deny that. But that doesn't mean that they were correct in their interpretations of scriptures. Because... They were all that as human beings, they were all led. They were both led by their own passions and desires, their own background. And when Martin Luther says, for example, that James is a right strawy epistle, Paul wrote epistles of gold because he seemed to Luther to teach salvation by faith alone. Since he seemed to teach that, he wrote epistles of gold. But James, the brother of Jesus, wrote strawy epistles, epistles of straw, because he said, we are not saved by faith alone. Well, I don't have to have a PhD to understand that I don't agree with that, and never, I am going to agree with that idea about the book of James. and or, or that I can't understand both Paul and James in a sensible, rightful way to believe that we are saved by faith, but we're not saved by faith alone. That we're not saved by the works of the law, but we're saved by the grace of Christ. I can, I can understand that without going where Martin Luther went with it or where John Calvin went with it. So anyway. But they, they had a particular purpose in mind. And if you're not careful, you get into these same situations where he, you know, basically Jesus talked about in John 5, 44, how can you believe? Believe what? Well, believe basically what God has told you in many cases, but also believe in Jesus who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. We have to seek God honestly. And and that's that's hard, Mike, I think in some cases. That's hard for us to do. Seeking God honestly uncovers what's in our heart, and sometimes what's in our heart is not pretty. Right. And you have to be able to recognize that and put it away. That's when, when we talk about repentance and yes. baptism, being able to put those things away is, is the hard part. You know, one of the things that I have uh, always appreciated about C.S. Lewis from the time I was a young man, and I don't, I don't think he says this anywhere, but it's something that comes apart. He is one of the few writers that I had run into and have run into who was able to kind of lift himself above his own upbringing and background enough to see a broader picture. He can kind of get out of his own English 20th century background enough to give me a better oversight of all. And he's able, therefore, to judge himself more accurately and see what it is. Some writers are just locked into their philosophy. And, and that's where we get caught up reading different political points of view and different things on the Internet, even religious points of view. And sometimes we're forgetting these people have a very narrow view of the world and of wisdom and of understanding. And we had a, we, not that they don't have anything valuable to say. We've got to get beyond that just a little bit. Now, now uh, I asked um, John texted in and said that uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.16, Paul had a change of philosophy regarding Jesus. And, then, and so I asked him what he uh, meant by that. 
and the verse I read in the New King, New American Standard in this case was, so therefore from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. So what he's, um, the, that, the phrase according to the flesh, I think the, I don't have the New American, the New International Version in front of me. Hang on, let me, let me look it up in the uh, ESV, which is pretty literal. No, it says the same thing. Um, he's equating according to the flesh with, I think, worldly philosophy. That's probably right. Uh, if you look at who Christ was according to worldly philosophy, he was a great Jewish teacher. He was a radical kind of teacher in Palestine in the first century. And Paul's view of Christ initially, before he was converted, was just that. This is a new rabbi trying to seize a position, and he's contradicting the law of Moses. He's getting disciples for himself, and Paul was because of that worldly view, was going to crush Jesus and his disciples. Paul later came to have the view, based on his experience and his conversion, that Christ was not just a worldly teacher, but had come from God, and therefore he was able to view Christ in a different way, not just according to philosophy. So there's a way that a lot of these Christian, so-called Christian writers, they look at the New Testament or look at what Christ says. And they look at it from the standpoint of he's just like Muhammad or Gandhi or someone like that, and they read his writings in that way, rather than seeing him for who he is in truth. Well, if you now, sometimes one can get you to the other, but well, if you read what he said in a lot of cases, you can't come to that conclusion. I, I keep going back to C.S. Lewis again. Let's go back to basically what C.S. Lewis said specifically about Jesus's claims to be God. Uh, and, and I think it reflects exactly what you said about C.S. Lewis. He was able to take a look at exactly what was written, what Jesus said about himself, and say, hey, if you want to make this man a good man, you're going to have a hard time because good men don't claim to be God. Right. And, and fake miracles. And, and, and claim, fake miracles. And fake their own resurrection. Right. Good men don't do those things. Good men don't do that. So he came up with what's called the trilemma, or I don't know if he came up with it or he made it popular. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, okay. or the Lord. You got your pick. He's either complete fraud or he's just a lunatic and thinks he's the son of God, and but he wasn't, or he's the Lord. You get your pick, but you don't get to make him a great teacher and a great right. moral philosopher. How can a great moral philosopher deceive people the way he did and say the things he said and still be great, considered a great moral philosopher. You don't get that choice from Jesus, and I think it's, that's on purpose in the will of God. So in any event, that's um, a little bit of take on this. Don't be afraid to read people, worldly authors on stuff. I read all the time. You have to read with discernment, and you have to read understanding what the Scriptures do say and what you can know or you're going to be led astray. Usually we get led astray according to the Bible. We get led astray, uh, according to the book of Jude, by our own lust. And James says this too. We're drawn away and enticed by our own lust. Right. And then sin conceives within us and brings well, forth this. Well, we're drawn away by our own pride. And, and, well, that's a, and, that's a and lust, us. the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and, the, and so forth. They all go together. You're correct about that. It's Human pride says, I can do what I want, and I can figure all things out for myself. By the way, I have that quote for C.S. Lewis if we want to read it, if we want to read it on air. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote on the deity of Jesus. I forgot the reference of where... It's in Mere Christianity, but I have to look up the page. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can call, or you can call, fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. 
he did not intend to. Yes. That's pretty well stated. Yes, and th- and that bit, that's what I was trying to um, summarize uh, there in those verses. Uh, and what I said about the trilemma. Now, uh, there's there's you can go on the internet, of course, and a lot of smart people they think are going to tell you that Lewis is wrong about that. Uh, well, they haven't. But but I don't if think you believe, I don't think he's wrong about that at all. Well, if you I believe scripture exactly is adequate, right. we can show you where Jesus claimed that very thing. If you if you want to understand, go to John eight. One of the best passages there. If if we want to read that, Mike, we can. Yeah. He made a claim there to be God, and they understood his claim. Yeah, that's the thing. The, the people there understood. The people understood exactly what he was saved. claiming to be, and picked up stones to to stone him because they had decided one of these other things existed. So they were going to kill him. Exactly. Um, exactly. Let, let me read the verses in. Um, in James about, and I'm going to be preaching on this soon. I maybe that's why it was in my mind a little bit. Uh, this is the problem that all of us have, Gary. Who care who we are and how long we've been a Christian. This is the reason why men are what I would call, so to speak, depraved—not hereditarily, totally depraved, but depraved. He, um, that he says that. Let no one, and this is in James 1, verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He's not trying to get you to sin. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires or lusts and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Now, in explanation of this verse, the idea here of the temptation is we see something that we might want or that looks alluring to us. And that's that's the individual nature of it. What looks alluring to one person doesn't look so alluring to other people. I'm never tempted to eat cottage cheese. A lot of people are. I don't understand that. But I'm not tempted to eat cottage cheese. But you put out some, uh, oh, put out some uh, jelly beans and uh, you got me, you see. Can't hardly resist them because I have a desire. There's something in me responds to whatever the temptation is. Now, unfortunately for human beings, most of us respond to the idea of having control over our own lives and doing what we want in a general way. And so we get, he says, when you were tempted, then we get drawn away by our own desires. Drawn away from what? From self-control, from God, from from a correct or right state. And we're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. The word conceived in Greek means taken hold. The Greeks viewed conception as a woman's body being taken over by a fetus. That's what they meant by conception. Seized is another word for it. So we are tempted by something and we think about it. And at some point in time, oftentimes, if the desire is great enough, that desire takes hold of us, we act upon it, and then we sin. It gives birth to sin. So there's a process that takes place. It's not instantaneous. It's a way of thought. Well, you can see with Adam and Eve, they saw something that they wanted, that they would desire to make them wise, it said. They could be like gods. It was beautiful to look at, tasted good. And so their desire said, I want it. I don't care what God says. I want it. And they took it. This is the problem. I I sin in the same way today. When I sin, it's because I want control of my own life. I'm going to do what I want, and I do what I I want. That's when sin sets in. The the key to this is what the Bible is saying is what has to be changed in me by the gospel of Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit through the word, is that my desires have to change. Not that the sin all be taken away or temptation will never be taken away as such. But my desire for that has to be taken out of my heart so that what replaces my desire is what replaced it in Paul, a desire to obey God and do what he says. Knowing that what he says is good and right and correct for me, I do what he says. Even if I don't understand all of it. I mean, I understand it, and at times I may... My desires may still be a little bit toward that temptation 
I do and act and think the way God wants me to because it's what's good for me and it's what's pleasing to him. And that's the old, that's what has to be changed in me. And that takes place through the power of the word acting on my heart. Well, see? when you get right down to it, I think, Mike, this is what uh, Jesus meant when he talked to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And he said the time is coming and now is when those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. Basically, it's God's spirit or God's desires or God's reason, logic, way that we should live our life that has to be transferred into us. Right. It has to be transferred into us through his word. You know, the Bible says in one place that the heart, that that men have trained their hearts in covetousness and things like that. You can train your heart. You can train your mind. And what you have to do is you have to train it in the way that God wants it to go. And that's what it means when we have to we have to worship him in spirit and in spirit. Our spirit needs to copy his in what we want to do. And the only way to do that is train it through God's word. Right. And right. so that's that's where we're coming from. So that and how do you do that? How do you understand that? How do you understand the Bible is is more than just one verse. It's more than just Ephesians 2, saved, we're saved by grace through faith. It's we're saved by grace through faith if it's perfected faith or completed faith in obedience. It's obedient faith. And obedient faith problem. is what saves uh, us. The, the Methodist discipline says, Whereby, wherefore that we are saved by grace alone is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. What does that mean? That's the Methodist discipline. Well, it means that if you're saved by grace alone, you don't have to do any obeying. Right. And you don't have to do anything else because God's going to do it all for you in the in final analysis. I know I'm being simplistic, but that's the final breakdown of it all. And that's why it's so comforting to people. Unfortunately, that's not what the Bible says about how to be saved. It is difficult, and it's a struggle. And we're all tempted again here like this to, to have our own way. And do our own thing, and so we fail so oftentimes. Well, that's why it's, it's that. that's why it said Jesus became the author of salvation to all who obey Him. Okay, right. to obey Him, you have to have faith to begin with. And we will receive, according to Second Corinthians, the deeds done in the body, right. uh, whether they be good or bad, at the judgment day. Right. So that's, we're talking about something that we do. So we got a couple minutes left, uh, Gary. Well, that I, goes back to John twelve forty eight again. What's going to be the standard by which you're going to be judged? And that's the words that he spoke. Right. Now, some people hear uh, what we're saying here, read what scripture. Oh, well, I'm hopeless because I can't stop sinning. Well, you can stop sinning, and you can, through the power of the gospel, slowly change the desires that you have. If you ever get rid of the self-will that says, I want what I want when I want it. This is what the flesh is. The flesh is five senses that we have, and those senses are made to tell us certain things. And we, if we live by our senses and do what we feel we ought to do, we will almost always be wrong. We've got to learn to go against that and go with what the scriptures tell us That's why from God, our heart and mind and not go based upon our feelings. Well, what does that take? It takes humility and a contrite heart. Right. What God says is, I will live with, I will bring the person this kind of person to live with me is the one with a humble and contrite heart. Right. It takes training to do that. You have it, it to. It can be done. It's not hopeless. Right. And, and uh, yes, God will over time remove those desires from your heart that are wrong. Not all desire. Desire itself isn't wrong. And I've been trying to but change for forty something years. Self will is wrong. That's right, Mike. I've been so trying well. to change for forty sure. something years, and there are still things that I discover daily that I need to change. Exactly right. And, 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 that, takes, and that's what power, how the gospel actually does have uh, power over us over time, is that when I am tempted of something, what comes into my heart is the word of God, and I my mind grasps that and says, this is what I ought to do. It may not be the same as what I wanted. And, and what really happens in the long run, we eventually want to do what is right yes. instead of what's wrong. But, take, but we're out of time. Yes. I think uh, we're totally out of time. And, uh, Somebody texted in, there's hope for me, question mark. Yes, there is. That's yes, right. there is. It's through the power of the gospel to change you. Well, our time is gone today. We really appreciate the calls, the texts, comments. We thank you very much for that. Hope it's been of some benefit to you to think through this with it here on us on the air. We'd like to invite you to take a look at our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com is the website. Lots of resources, including recordings of this show. 
We'd also like to invite you to come and be with us anytime you can. 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. We'd love to have you this morning at about 1010 for our Bible class, 11 o'clock for our worship, 730 on Wednesday night. Thank you for listening this week. Hope you can tune in again next week to We Are Just Christians. May God bless you. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie with your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. <laughs>